Hi, Erica. Welcome again to the Great Writers Project. Thank you for speaking to us today. I'm going to discuss Richard Kipling, who has his own author page on, on, the, on the website, and perhaps look a bit more closely at the, the period when he gained his, his fame and became, as he's now remembered, the Bard of Empire, that sort of um, status that he acquired, and how he moved from being just a journalist in India, writing short stories uh, in the 1880s, to being offered the Poet Laureateship or being awarded the first Nobel Prize in Literature, titles about which he was always quite ambivalent anyway. And I think we might might be interesting to explore this through the poetry maybe of the of the late 1890s. Mm. Yeah, well, I, this is an interesting topic to explore the um, the popularity in his time of Kipling, that he had the kind of name recognition, he enjoyed mm. the name recognition that, you know, if you like Paul McCartney, someone like Paul McCartney or, you know, other, you know, writers of popular lyrics mm-hmm. um, do today, he was that kind of name on everybody's lips and, um, you know, he had a word for every occasion really mm-hmm. um, and not just for, if you like, the educated middle classes but also for those who enjoyed music hall and so on. Um, so it's, it is an interesting question, why Why did Kipling, who after all came from the outside in, you know, he famously said, you know, what do they know of England who only England know? And he certainly came from the outside and, um, in a sense, knew England from that outside perspective as he learned to know it from within. So what is it about Kipling that captured imaginations in the way he did? I have a couple of speculations. Maybe you do too. <laughs> Just to share one very basic point to make, but I think think that even with the eyes of retrospect, he was one of the greatest prosodists in the English language yeah. in the modern era, really. Craig Rain is a big <laughs> fan of, of Kipling's uh, rhythms and the way the elasticity of those rhythms and the way he's able to you know, manipulate them in order to get his meanings across the heavy tread beat of Danny Diva, for example, and the the hymn-like tones of recessional um, and the reversals of the rhythm that he uses to excellent effect mm-hmm. in order to suggest the threat of imperial yeah. reversal. It's, it's amazing. Yeah. Um, sound gymnastics in Kipling. So I would offer that as the, one of the reasons why in his time he enjoyed the fame mm. he did. Uh, do, you, do you have other speculations? Being able, I think he's able to sum up huge uh, cultural movements, really, or, like, or, or ideas uh, in, in sentences. And I think that's why things like, well, you know, if being the nation's favourite poem still today... And with so many phrases permeating English language, perhaps that you know that we use without even realising it's Kipling, those sort of phrases that enter uh, contemporary discourse, I think they you know we use them because they are shortcuts. They they signify something much bigger than uh, themselves, and whether we like or don't like what they signify, that's still. Um, still the case. You know, you have books written about the white man's burden, mm-hmm. uh, and they're about aid. You know, in contemporary Africa, and you have the famous pop song "Female of the Species." Yes, indeed. Uh, you know, people, um, 
all sorts of ways. Yeah. No, east, east, east meets East, well, racism, yeah, never and the train shall that's meet. That's still yeah. quoted by journalists writing on Al Jazeera today. Mm, absolutely. It's yeah. I mean, so again, it's not an, only an elasticity of rhythm um, or sonority, um, but it's also an elasticity of a semantic elasticity, mm. I suppose, and, a, and an ability to kind of tap into what is... I suppose most important to people in in any one time, I guess, has to do with uh, people's identification with power structures, people's sense of themselves. Um, I think partly also, and I, what you were saying reminded me of this. And Kipling it was an incredibly interesting ventriloquist, not a parrot, not at all, but but had this astonishing ability to, as it were imaginatively um, enter into a situation and speak as if from that position, even though he himself did not in, in, inhabit it. Mm. Cecil John Rhodes, I think, famously said of Kipling, he was his friend, say it, say it, say what I mean. Yeah, mm -hmm. And so yeah. recognising that, that power of ventriloquism. It's, it's remarkable that Kipling, who was Indian-born, brought up partly in England, partly in India, when he went to the theatre of the South African War, mm -hmm. was able, in a matter of weeks, really, to imbibe the atmosphere and you know, the, the situation of the common soldiers on the ground and the, the, the dust-laden, dry air that he was breathing and they were breathing, managed to pick these things up and render them into short stories that are incredibly pungent and yeah. of the moment. Um, it's, it's just a stunning ability. It's, it's not mimicry, not at all. It's, uh, it's yeah, as I say, ventriloquism, this, this ability. I, I suppose it's a quality of imaginative sympathy, is mm. the ability to, to throw his voice and his perspective into the position of another. I think that's something we see in his fiction as well. Um, and his short stories, perhaps especially, we think of his subaltern language, mm. or we think of his you know, native Indian characters as well. Yeah, casting of a voice and a perspective, certainly. Yeah, you know, it's 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 a it's a quality clearly widely recognised um, truism almost that Shakespeare had. But I think Kipling, in a way, despite in spite of his imperialism, and that didn't, as it were, circumscribe or cage in this quality of imaginative sympathy mm. on, on the contrary it was so strong that it was actually able to to step out of that cage mm -hmm. I mean I find Kipling fascinating because he's so good at this and yet he turns down the poet laureate ship and he he seems reluctant particularly this at this period anyway maybe less so uh, when the first world war begins but to assume a very British nationality. He's a big fan of the empire, but is reluctant to be that figure. Mm. Uh, stood, you know, that figure beside Queen Victoria, in the way that Queen Victoria is very symbolic. He he allows his words to become these big symbols, but he himself, I don't feel like he ever wanted to be the bard of empire. Mm. From, Didn't want to assume the mantle. Or, yeah, I think. Yeah, or perhaps valued too much that creative freedom of his craft yeah. and his art. I mean, he had, after all, um, a deeply mystical sense of his creative gifts. You know, he would 
he would sort of smoke yeah. himself into a stupor mm. and into a great cloud of smoke and then and then write and he did always say that his writing came from that other side of his yeah, head yeah. so it it might have been almost a superstition around limiting in some way again yeah. caging mm -hmm. that the freedom of his own genius is mm. is is all I can think of, and then also possibly, I mean, he did he need the the poet laureateship? No, he no, was already the unofficial laureate, yeah, you know. Yeah. And and there is that side of Kipling that is, in spite of his more unpalatable, you know, imperialist <laughs> attitudes, that is on the side of the subaltern, yeah, the yeah. maverick, the Danny Diva. You know, it perhaps he thought that he would become circumscribed in terms of what he could write about. Limited, yeah. Yeah, if he, or limited, if he if he assumed that mantle. But it's interesting that he did, of course, accept the Nobel with great, yes. <laughs> with great pleasure. Although maybe the, the, the two are such very, very different mm. roles, and he, he used the money to buy himself a motor car, didn't he? So he was able to indulge his, his delight in, in machines yeah. and modernity. That's another thing. It's another important aspect, kind of touched on by implication what we've said. But mm -hmm. Kipling was so much and interestingly on the cutting edge of the present into the future. You know, very different from the Romantic tradition in English writing. He embraced technology. He was interested in considering its effects, in describing its impact, in looking at its repercussions full in the face. You know, which is why he had such a extremely fraught relationship to the whole legacy of the of the First World War. Mm. Guns, cars, trains, steamships, undersea cables, all of that was something that deeply interested him. So his interests in that regard were of a piece with the common reader's interests. It, it's you know it's a kind of brittle, um, geometric, uh, metallic, you know, hard intelligence, mm. you know, Kip Kipling's creative intelligence. And um, he didn't shy away from what was all around him. And I think people simply, his readers, appreciated that kind of honesty. It's an yeah. honesty. Well, thank you, Alika, very much for your contribution again today. It's always fun to talk about Kipling. Please. Here's a question for listeners <laughs> out there. Is he the Elton John of his time?